she'd hit us up the back of the head or something like that. And so she'd leave the marks on our backs an awful lot, but nobody saw them. And so she'd said mentally retarded people couldn't raise kids. So I grew up with that concept that I was mentally retarded. Anyway, I had um, started getting into the occult, got involved in uh, Satanism, you know, and, and I just say, he's not the little guy out there, the pitchfork and the red suit and the long tail. He could be standing right here in front of you. And right after we got married, he relapsed and became the most violent man I've ever, ever known. Uh, one time he kidnapped me and put me in the trunk of a car and took me to New, New Mexico. You know, I know what I'm going to do now. And I had a prescription for 110 milligrams of Valium. And I headed over to the pharmacy and I was going to get that filled and get me a bottle of wine and go out to the falls and just finally end it. That was, I just, you know, there was my, my answer. Have you ever struggled with darkness in your life? And I'm not talking about trying to find your car keys in a dark room. I'm talking about darkness that you can feel. Darkness that disguises itself as light, but always leads to a path of destruction. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world. Sometimes the enemy shows up as abuse against us. Sometimes he shows up as temptations that seem good at the time, but always lead to bad consequences. Sometimes the enemy doesn't disguise himself at all. Sometimes he just tries to smother me in darkness in hopes of snuffing out the light altogether. Are there choices that I can make to keep that darkness out of my life? If I have yielded to the darkness in my life, is there still hope? Is there a way out? And if so, what choices can I make to keep the darkness away forever? These are questions I want to discuss with our guest today as she shares her life change story with us. I'm Eric Hutchinson, and this is the If Nothing Changes podcast. So, hey, friend, thanks for coming on my podcast. Why don't you introduce yourself and let the listeners know who you are? Well, hi, my name is Fern, and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I'm just here to share my story. Oh, well, Fern, thank you so much for coming here and, and uh, sharing your story with us. I'm really excited about hearing it again. I've heard it before, but it's been a really long time. And so why don't we start off with kind of where you're from. We have listeners all over the place. And I, I, was, I had one last week from Russia, and I've had uh, some from India and different places. And so I think it's just really good to give people context to, to where they're from. So why don't you tell us where you're from and tell us uh, a little bit about your background. Well, I was born and raised in Southern California, and the last three years we lived there, we moved up into the mountains and the desert at the same time, and there's a little place called Tehachapi, and it was a, a unique little town, and it was really, uh, it was a good place to grow up at, in Southern California. So how was the weather? They say that California is wonderful to live. Is it Was it nice all the time? It was beautiful. I never saw snow until I moved to Tehachapi, other than on the mountains. <laughs> yes. So did you, were you an only child, or did you have some siblings? I had two brothers younger than me and a sister younger than me. Okay, so you're the oldest child yes. then. So tell me about uh, a little bit growing up. What was it like growing up in your family? Was it uh, all cake and cookies, or was uh, there some, some problems? 
It was pretty chaotic. Uh, my dad worked away from home on construction most of the time. And when he was home, life was perfect. It was great. Um, mom had some anger issues, I guess you could say. So we never really knew what kind of mood she was going to be in and what was going to happen when we walked in the door. So was your dad gone a lot then or not? Yes, he was. He would be gone for weeks at a time and be home for maybe a weekend. Sometimes he'd be gone for two or three months at a time and come home for a weekend or a few days or something like that. And when they finished jobs, he'd be in between you know, the road construction jobs until the new one started. And he might be home for a whole week, and that'd be great. <laughs> so what's the age difference between you and your next sibling? Um, a little bit over a year old, okay, about 13 so, months. So yeah. close. Did you Were you close with your with your brothers and sisters or it, not? My, my brother, yes. Both my brothers, I was. Um, my youngest brother, I still take care of today. He's 11 years younger than I am. And my sister was um, three years younger than me. Okay. So did you guys stay in that area most of your childhood or did you move around? No, we stayed in one place. My dad, my mom did not want to move us around. So she wanted us to have, uh, you know, have our roots right there. And because she grew up, moved around all the time. So we stayed there while daddy went away to work and then daddy come home. So was there any religion or God in your family, or did oh, that yes. come later? Okay, well, tell us about oh, that. Oh, yes. My mother was very strong, devout, united Pentecostal, and that was how I grew up, and the kids used to make fun of me because I wore my hair up in a bun. I had the long dresses and the long sleeves, and yeah, it was different. <laughs> so would you say that it was very legalistic from that very, standpoint? Okay. Very legalistic, yes. Yeah. So what did, uh, Fern, so you said that your mom, uh, when your dad was not away, was she physically abusive or was it just more emotionally or, or tell me about some of the dysfunction there? Oh, she was very physically abusive to me and my brother just younger than me. And she was very, very emotionally abusive and she was, you know, she'd get mad and she would just go into her tantrums and they'd be pretty bad. So did you guys just try to stay clear whenever you saw that coming? Yes, I'd try to grab a book and crawl under the bed and read a book or take a book and run outside and try to read a book or just anything to just try to run away and and just stay away. So was the physical abuse bad enough where it showed up on your body and maybe you know someone at school would see that or? Uh, Yes and no. Most of our because we wore the long dresses and and things. She never hit us in the face. She'd hit us up the back of the head or something like that, and so she'd leave the marks on our backs an awful lot. But nobody saw them. So what was it like in school for you? Were you a rule follower or were you a little bit of a rebel? Were you shy or were you outgoing? Oh, and uh, when I was younger, when I was in school, I was very shy, followed all the rules because I didn't want to get in trouble, you know? And so I was a, I tried to be the perfect little child until I got in high school. <laughs> so things changed when you got in high school, huh? Yes, we moved uh, to Tehachapi, and um, things were a lot different. I all of a sudden became popular overnight, and it was like all the guys would ask me out for dates, and I wasn't allowed to date. And um, so, yeah, and I met a lot of different people up there. Yeah. 
So now you said that, you know, things at home were a little bit volatile. So did you hide that well at school? And, you know, to everyone else, they didn't know what was going on. What did Fern believe about herself? What kind of identity? I mean, were you very confident or would you have self-esteem issues? I mean, tell me a little bit about what you thought about yourself going into school. Oh, I was very insecure. I felt um, everything was my fault. I was the blame for everything. And nobody liked me. Nobody wanted to be around me. So it was a a bad self-image when I was growing up. Mm. But you said that changed in high school. You said you became Mm -hmm. a little bit more popular. Yes. And I got introduced to drugs. So I started out, um, and I don't really remember a whole lot of my teenage years because I got too involved in drugs. So you don't have a lot of money whenever you're a teenager. So was it marijuana? Was it alcohol? What was the what was the drug of choice? Anything I get my hands on. <laughs> and mostly I liked a lot of downers because I could just escape. And so I got introduced to uh, what they called junk reds. And it was um, second all with heroin mixed in them. Wow. And a lot of it I got started with... Um, through a doctor, I'd gotten my back hurt, and they started giving me a lot of painkillers and different things for my back. And then I found them, I can get them on the streets wow. after they cut me off. So, yeah. Wow. So heroin, that's a that's a heavy drug for a teenager. Yes. Yes, it was. So how was that then? You got out of high school. Did you pursue any kind of education after high school, or did you go straight into the workforce? No. Uh, right after I finished high school, um, mom and dad decided to move us to Arkansas to get us away from the drugs. And so we moved back here to Arkansas, and I've lived here um, for most of my life. I always say I grew up in California. I was born and raised in California, but I grew up hard and fast in Arkansas. So how old were you when you moved to Arkansas? Just barely 18. Okay, so you were just right out of high school when y'all moved there. Mm -hmm. So you said your parents moved to get you away from it. So apparently they knew about the drugs. Mm, You weren't able to hide that from them. Right. And my brother and I both were doing drugs at that time. So they wanted to get us away from them. Yeah. So what did you do at 18 in Northwest Arkansas? I mean, what did you do? Did you get a job right out, you know, when you moved here? Or, you know, did you live at home? I mean, tell me a little bit about your life during that time period. I lived at home because, and girls were not supposed to work. (laughs) Girls were supposed to get married and raise families and be homemakers. So I snuck out and got my first job at a nursing home and, you know, here in, in, in Bentonville. And I worked there, and unfortunately, I met somebody, and I got pregnant, and um, I didn't get married. And so my son was born, and um, I kept him. And so I stayed at home when we raised my son, you know. And so, um, yeah, my son's grown now and has Five kids of his own. <laughs> so you were a single mom, and is this at 19, 20? Mm-hmm, 19. So you yeah. were a single mom, and you were living at home with your mom mm-hmm. and, and dad, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. So how was the anger with your mom? Did it finally dissipate a little bit when you moved into Arkansas, or was she still very volatile while your dad was away? Well, she got better. Um, she wasn't as abusive. You know, she was no longer physically abusive. And so she took care of my son while I worked. And then finally, as I, I moved out and I got my first place to live, and she talked me into keeping my son because I couldn't really turn him over to people who um, might hurt him. 
you know, so it was best to leave him there for her to take care of. Yeah. And that was where he ended up at because I was never, she never trusted me to, to have him. So did it work moving to Arkansas to get you away from the drugs or did you find it here as well? Um, after my son was probably about two or three years old, I started using drugs again, mostly through a doctor. And then I started finding, finding the drugs again on the street. So did you just tell the doctor that you had more pain and that you needed more relief? I mean, how did you get it from the doctor or was he be doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing? Well, by that time I was a nervous wreck, you know, so they gave me Valium for a tranquilizer. Oh, here we come with the downers again, <laughs> you know? So it was like, yeah, I could do that and just kind of escape, you know? And then I would learn to drink, you know, just like I did when, when I was a teenager, learn to drink on them to intensify them. So alcohol was a part of that mm -hmm, as well. Yeah. So you were a single mom and you mentioned the drug use. When did you meet your husband and how did that happen? And I mean, did you guys have a long courting period or did you get married quickly? And then how long were you married? Um, I went to a friend's house and she had, she was a witch and I had, you know, dabbled in the occult and that was a lot different than being, um, away from the church because I was running away from this Jesus guy, whoever he was, you know, I didn't want to have anything to do with him. So this was a friend and you said, when you said, which the first thing I came to mind was that she was just a, a bad person, but she was really a witch. She was a witch. She yes. was a witch. And so how did that happen? I mean, I mean, were you guys, did you work together or how did you meet this person? And then how was the, the entry into that, that life? I actually met her. I was a bartender. Oh, okay. And I met her at the bar. She used to come in and, and you know, order a drink each night. And she was a pretty classy lady. And I used to think, what are you doing in this dive? You know, <laughs> And I would, just talked to her. And so we just, as we talked over, you know, the days when she would, that she would come in, we learned we lived in the same apartment complex, like one or two buildings apart. And so we just got to be friends and we started hanging out together. And she started introducing me to numerology, astrology. At first it was, you know, easy stuff. And then she started teaching me about um, casting spells on people, and she got mad at our landlord, and she cast a spell on him, and he died of cancer a short time later, and she took the credit for that. You know, so it was because of her spell that he got cancer. <laughs> so what attracted you to that? I mean, usually someone says, hey, I'm a witch. I mean, that's going to be a shocker for someone. So it sounds to me like it was more of a slow process, learning about astrology, learning about some of the stuff. And then at some point you realize that she was really into this and she was a witch. She was starting to cast spells and that sort of thing. So what attracted you to that? Was it the power that you had some power that was that you could control or I mean, what what, what attracted you to that lifestyle? Um, it was more of just somebody told me to do this, and I would follow authority. Okay. And that just seems to be what most of my whole pattern was, just do what I was told, don't make waves. So how, how old were you when you got into the occult, and how long was that period of time there that you were involved in all that? I was probably around 26 or so, so it was probably about two years. Anyway, I had um, started getting into the occult, and I was dabbling in the witchcraft and, and stuff and doing spells and stuff on people and um, got involved in uh, Satanism for a while there. And so anyway, I was living um, up in Joplin, and 
I was with, I went over to a friend's house and she read my tarot cards that night and the card of death came up. <laughs> There's my answer. You know, I know what I'm going to do now. And I had a prescription for 110 milligrams of Valium. And I headed over to the pharmacy and I was going to get that filled and get me a bottle of wine and go out to the falls and just finally end it. That was, I just, you know, there was my, my answer. So I, to this day, I cannot tell you how it happened. Um, I didn't make it to the pharmacy. I didn't make it to the liquor store. I went the opposite direction. I ended up, I had never heard of Narcotics Anonymous, but I ended up in a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. I drove my car out to St. John's Hospital. Apparently, I parked my car. I walked in. I have no recollection of any of it. I remember getting in my car at the parking lot of the apartment complex, and that's the last memory I have, until I walked through the doors in an NA meeting, and I had, they told me later I had walked up to the information desk and said, oh, where am I supposed to be? And this man told me, go back down the hall, go through the double doors, and I'd be home. So that's what I did. And I walked through those double doors and... Somebody said, welcome home, darling. And I'm kind of going, where am I? <laughs> you know? He says, you're in an uh, NA meeting. I said, what's NA? And he said, you're in a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Come on in. Okay. <laughs> you know? So I went in. I sat down. I listened to the meeting that night. And then I went out to the meeting after the meeting. I went out to Shoney's. And we had, they, you know, they bought me a... Um, chocolate fudge cake. I remember that. And I sit there with um, that prescription and something just told me to tear that prescription up. And I did, and I put it over in the ashtray and then I set it on fire. Do you feel like that maybe God intervened in that time period? I mean, you ended up in a narcotics anonymous and you wouldn't have been there for any reason. Mm -hmm. I mean, you wouldn't have gone there on your own for any reason. So what a, an amazing thing that somehow you are going to end your life, but instead you end up at a Narcotics Anonymous. Mm -hmm. That's all I can say is God intervened at that point. And that's what I still say today. He intervened and he took me where I was supposed to be. So what, what impressed you about that meeting? You went there and had the coffee with a biker and you were at the meeting. What was it that impressed you so much? And I'm assuming that you stayed you know, on that path or stayed in that group for a while. Yes, but they had what I've always been looking for. They were happy, joyous, and free. And I just kept taking that next blind, you know, that next step in blind faith and just letting God lead me, you know, showing me what I was supposed to be doing. So where was your son during all of this time that you were in the occult and that you were struggling with drugs and you got into N.A.? Did you have custody of your son? Did you see him a lot? Or? Oh, I had custody because I didn't know, we didn't know anything else, to do, but my parents just kept him. And so they, you know, uh, they would tell, my mom would tell me that I didn't have enough sense. Her, she used to tell me I was mentally retarded all the time. And so she'd said mentally retarded people couldn't raise kids. So I grew up with that concept that I was mentally retarded. You know, our parents have such influence over us, and she planted that in your mind, mm -hmm. that that's who you were. And for a while, that was your identity. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah. 
So tell me what happened after you were in Narcotics Anonymous for a while and uh, you got sober. Mm-hmm. And so what happened after that? Now, now, now let's talk That's about your, I met, my husband. met your husband. You yeah. met him in, in a, or yes, he had just gotten out of treatment. And of course, you know, in recovery, you're not supposed to get in any relationships the first year of your recovery. Well, I didn't listen to that. And so here he had just barely been clean, you know, and right after we got married, he relapsed and became the most violent man I've ever, ever known. Wow. And it was a really scary ordeal. Yeah. So uh, I take it that while you were dating him, getting to know him or whatever, none of that anger came out. Was it after you got married that Mm -hmm. that you realized that was a problem? Three days after we got married, he relapsed. Oh, my goodness. And shoved me down three flights of stairs. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, into reality. (laughs) So how long were you guys married? On paper, two years. Okay. How long did you stay with him before you said, this is abusive? And and I'm assuming your son was with you. No, he was still with my parents. Okay. My parents had just always had him for his whole life. So I never did get to have him back. And that was part of the reasons why I was running away from that pain and that hurt that, you know, from when when mom took him, you know. So it was like, yeah, nothing's going to fill that gap. So your mom basically kind of bullied you into taking custody of your child, and you just kind of accepted that. Yeah, yeah, because that's what she told me to do, and I was good at following directions. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about your ex-husband for a moment. You said he was the most violent man that you have ever known, but how bad did it get? Um, I would try to get away from him. I'd go into women's shelters. He kidnapped me or had me kidnapped. Uh, One time he kidnapped me and put me in the trunk of a car and took me to New New Mexico. And it's cold riding in the trunk of a car in the wintertime in in New Mexico going out there. So let me stop you right there. I know you learned about God in Narcotics Anonymous, but when did you meet Jesus? Oh, when I met Jesus, I was being held captive. My husband had kidnapped me again, was holding me in a hostage in a motel room. And there was nothing in that skanky motel room but a bare light bulb and a bed, uh, the rats and the roaches in there, and um, a Gideon Bible. And I sit down on my bed, and I started reading that Bible, and I just got to the point, I said, Jesus, if you're real, show me, and I'll follow you the rest of my life. If you're not real, get out of here and leave me alone. He came. (laughs) I mean, I had such a peace come over me and that I no longer, it was like the light came on and it was like brilliant. And so that was a horrible experience to stay for like three days in that room with those things before I finally decided to ask Jesus to help me, you know? And it was like, it was so strange because my husband had guards outside the the motel or, you know, the, the doorway and the bathroom because too many times that I escaped through bathroom windows. And um, I just had this feeling, open the door and walk out. What a concept. Where did that come from? Open the door and walk out. Walked right past those guys. They never, all I can say is they never saw me, you know, and I took off running. I got down to the, you know, the end of the block and I just felt like run And I started running, ran around the corner, and I just took off. I ran until I didn't have any breath left in me again. Caught a bus, and I jumped on that bus without any money, a bus ticket, nothing. (laughs) You know, of course, I got thrown off (laughs) a few minutes later, but I got far enough away. So 
I, again, I'm just trying to piece together the timeline. So you said you were only with your husband about a year. So during that time period, um, and you, you, you seem to indicate that you were kidnapped not just once, but a couple times. So mm-hmm. I'm guessing that you tried to get out of the relationship and then he would go find you, yes. kidnap you, and then basically hold you prisoner. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct because he didn't believe in divorce, but I was his third wife. And um, I kept trying to get away and he kept finding me. So tell me, is the time that he kidnapped you, put you into the trunk and took you, was that the time that he took you to a hotel and that you found Jesus? No, that, or? Was, that was when I finally got away. By then I had met Jesus and it had been several months later. And so that was when I finally got away. When we went to New Mexico, the people there really helped me to get away from him permanently. I've never seen him since. So now that you're free from your abusive husband, and how did you um, pursue Jesus then? I mean, did you go back to that hotel? I mean, did you go back in your mind, okay, I had a, a miracle happen at a hotel room, and I'm going to follow this Jesus? Or how, what led you uh, that, that path? Well, ever since I had that experience with Jesus, I was just driven to go to church, just driven to go to a church, you know? And so I would find different churches, and I would go wherever I could, I could be at. And so when I was in New Mexico, I was going to a Nazarene church there with a family that I lived with and everything, you know, with Betty and Leroy and them. And it was just a wonderful church, a wonderful experience. And I got to see how Christians live, you know. And so I lived with them for about six months. And then I just was getting to the point I wanted to go home. (laughs) You know, I just really, I was homesick. I wanted to go home. And so I've never heard from my ex-husband since then. I was finally able to come here and get a divorce and be totally free of him. But I still lived in fear for a lot of years, a lot of years, you know, and it it was still, um, it left its mark. Yeah. Yeah. Well, after being kidnapped multiple times and held hostage, I can imagine what that trauma would do for your fear. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you're, when you keep saying refer to home, you're talking about Arkansas, correct? Okay. So you came back here and um, so where did you, what happened after, how old are you now that you're you're back here after that? You've finally divorced from your husband. What's your age? And then where did you go next? Oh, I was probably around 30, something like that, whenever I came back here, maybe a little bit, a little bit old, older than that. And I've lived here pretty much ever since then. Yeah. You so know? did you, were you, did you stay sober after oh, that? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. I knew what was behind me if I would have relapsed. And it was just nothing but death and destruction. Mm. But I didn't know what was ahead of me. But I knew it couldn't be death and destruction like that. So, so tell me about what, what was ahead of you. Where did you, so you come back here, I'm assuming you got a job and started working, but where mm-hmm. did you, about your son, your son's still with your parents? And, yep, and right? I lived with my parents for a little while until I was able to get back on my feet again and for my body to heal up. Um, and I started doing in-home care work. I took care of elderly people. So you're back here in Northwest Arkansas, you're working in elderly care or home care, mm-hmm. you're, and you feel safe, you're there. So now you were in your 30s at that point. So would you say that that was kind of the turning point for you and that your life uh, turned a different direction at that point, or were there some setbacks for you? No, that definitely was because I, I've never left Northwest Arkansas since I got back here. And um, so I've just stayed with Christians, stayed in church, you know, and just kept following what I felt was the Lord's path for me. And I 
still went to NA and AA, um, and I was there for about 21 years. And at my church, we started a, a program called Celebrate Recovery. And I got, I was on the, you know, uh, very early in the leadership over there. And so we founded that and we just kept going and kept going. And it's been going on for 20 years now. And it's all about Jesus Christ as your higher power, not someone who is just kind, loving, and forgiving. And by going to CR, it really helped me to lose so much of my shame, so much of my guilt uh, that I still carried with me for all those years. And it's been really cool to work with other people and to keep growing CRs. And, you know, I branched out into, because I felt like when I was a teenager, that I felt like someday I was going to be working with women. I thought that was weird because I don't even like women, <laughs> you know? And so here I am uh, working with at the women's prison, taking Celebrate Recovery on the inside and heading up that team down there. And I did that for several years, and I just loved it. And it was like I saw, got to lead some of those women to Christ and to see, have a front row seat to watch Jesus show up and change lives. And it was so amazing and so awesome to watch them do that. And I just love it. Celebrate Recovery has just been a big life changer. And I know after I started getting involved with codependency, one of the codependent gurus that I, that I really like to follow, um, she had said that either you're going to grow or you're going to go. And you're either going to face all that codependency that drove you to alcoholism and drug addiction and work through it, or you're going to go back to your addiction. So it's interesting you mentioned the codependency. You kept saying, well, she told me to do it, and I was really good at following orders. And mm -hmm. I thought, hmm, that sounds a little <laughs> bit like codependency. So Yes. <laughs> that's interesting. Well, it sounds to me like you've got some really interesting perspectives, and um, the the whole occult thing that you got into, does it help your spiritual walk knowing that you've seen a little part of the other side or that you've seen the enemy at work in some really dark areas? You know, I think a lot, I think, I don't know about a lot, but there's people that, that don't ever see that side. And the enemy, a lot of time works very covertly, very hiddenly, and we don't see it. It's not in our face, but you saw some of that in yes. your face and you've seen the darkness that that leads to. And so does that help you uh, as you remember that? You think, you know what? I don't ever want to go back to that that way of life again. Exactly. Exactly. And I have met so many Christians that when you talk about the devil, they don't want to hear about it. You know, and, and I just say, he's not the little guy out there, the pitchfork and the red suit and the long tail. He could be standing right here in front of you. And you don't even know it. You know, and it, it really helped to strengthen my faith an awful lot, my faith in the Lord. Well, let me wrap things up by saying this last thing here. If you have one message, and you can only pick one, so, but if you had one message for the listeners that you just want to drive home to them as they're listening to your story, what would that message be? Choice. We have the freedom of choice. And how would you recommend people choose? Choose God. <laughs> Amen. Choose God above all else. Yes. Amen. Yeah, I think uh, you know the people say, "Well, why doesn't why doesn't God just heal me?" I'm like, "Well, you have to let Him in." Mm -hmm. You know, uh, in Revelations it says, "I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and fellowship with them." And so yes. it's one of those things that He gives us the power 
to choose to open the door or to leave the door shut and to not let him in. And so I'm so glad that you let him in and he did a miracle change in your life. Yeah, he's given me a couple of scriptures over the years that I've really stood on. And one is Matthew 6, 33, to seek him and his kingdom and his righteousness first, and then all these things shall be added unto you. And the other one that he gave me was, you know, in Romans 8, 28, it's one of my favorites too, because it's like, he's going to take all things and use them for my good, and he's going to get the glory. But he uses everything for my good. Amen. So if someone can relate to your story and they say, how do I get out of this path? How do I change? What, what advice would you give them? Ask Jesus. Have him into your life. Invite him in to be your Lord and Savior. And he'll lead you. He might lead you to celebrate recovery. He might lead you someplace else. He might lead you to a women's shelter. But ask Jesus. Make him Lord and Savior of your life. Choose Jesus Christ as your higher power. Fern, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. Hey, if you are listening today and you feel smothered by darkness, maybe it's darkness from others or maybe it's darkness that you have caused in your own life. No matter what, there is light that can chase away all darkness. And his name is Jesus Christ. As Fern said, you have a choice. Choose Jesus and he can change your life forever. However, if nothing changes, nothing changes. See you next time.